Welcome to this month's episode of Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody, and I am the content manager here at the ACFE. And today I am joined by Pam Mantone. She is the director at Elliott Davis de Cosimo in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Welcome, Pam. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. We are very excited to have you here. When we were talking beforehand, you know, I asked you to think about a case that stuck with you and that you remember or that you were particularly proud of. And you mentioned an embezzlement case that you worked on a few years ago. So I'm excited for us to delve into that. But first, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are briefly and what you do right now? I am actually the Fraud and Forensic Director at Elliott Davis DeCosimo. I spend my days doing a lot of work for attorneys, litigation, commercial complex litigation in terms of forensic accounting. I also do a fair amount of embezzlement cases, money laundering cases, and Ponzi schemes. So I was also an auditor, and I specialized in financial institutions and governmental auditing. Tell us a little bit about how you initially got involved with this embezzlement case at a credit union. Initially, there was a transaction that had been found from their loan examiner that didn't make sense to him, and he took it to the CEO of the bank of the credit union and just basically said, I think you guys need to check on this and have this out. Well, the credit union uh, started researching online, found our firm, gave me a call. I said, sure, I'll be up there tomorrow and we'll talk about it. So we started discussing the case with their attorney. And that's how we got involved in this one. And it turned out for a, a small credit union to have a lot of little interesting facets to this case. I read in your case study, there was that red flag that was raised by the National Credit Union Association. Initially, were there other red flags that you noticed as well? Well, originally, they had picked up on one particular individual with loans. We started delving into it, and we actually found a rather complicated and convoluted way of a loan officer of taking money out of the credit union by setting up various members of the credit union and started building loans off of them. It was very, very complicated. And we actually ended up finding three additional people involved or fictitious people that were involved in these loan scams compared to what the NCUA credit officer had found. What made it so elaborate? The loan officer had a degree in information technology. She was the most hands-on user for the software at the credit union, helped everybody else when they had issues with the software. She also, in developing these fictitious loans, actually used members' names of the credit union, part names maybe, the first name of one credit union member and then maybe the last name of another credit union Uh. member. And she dealt this up and continued in an elaborate maze of loans that would go through these three accounts and in the process of making this maze of loan payments go through, she would take the money out. She was very good at shifting loan payments, so none of these loans ever hit over 90 days. Nobody knew that they were not realistic loans. I think the sad part about this case, 
the majority of these the, on these three loans or three individuals we talked about, she actually used other credit union members' collateral on these loans, so the collateral was correct. So no one ever really knew, and of course, most of the collateral was in the forms of long-term CDs, so no one had come in to claim or pull out their certificate of deposit, so no one really knew that they had their CDs collateralized on a loan that was basically paying to the loan officer. So she was making Frankenstein loans, picking different pieces and putting them all together. And one of the first members, one of the issues that we had was the address on the loan actually was in the middle of a cemetery. And then there was another loan that was in the middle of a farm field. Then we had one member whose address was actually a post office box number was in her husband's name, not her oh, name. Oh, wow. In addition to setting up the loans, she also had the authority to set up credit cards. While the credit union maintained a $5,000 limit on credit cards, she issued and opened these credit cards for these three individuals with a term limit of over $7,000. You know, I know you used data analysis to help find a lot of this. Tell me how that played a part during your investigation. The data analysis is what enabled us to find the majority of the transactions. I use data analysis all the time. I actually use a software program that embeds into Excel. The data analysis, it's actually active data. We also have IDEA here. We use very different ones depending on the size of the case. But we were able to take and extract between names, numbers, and being able to follow the information where it actually went out and how the money was being used. When she would take out money and make payments, she would also save enough of that money to make a loan payment so that they didn't go over the 90 days. And she always used the night deposit box for these loan payments. And we found in her desk a deposit stamp, which she wasn't supposed to have, but she did, but always used the night deposit box to find these, we actually realized at some point she's got to be spending tons of hours trying to cover this up. When I was pulling the information together for the FBI agent on this case and I was doing a presentation, I had one transaction that was flow charted across three pages as she went through the money process. We did have to kind of laugh because I still remember this to this day. This lady was very much egotistical. And so in about the fourth layer of all of these transactions, we actually found a fictitious check made to a Tiffany Swindle. We really got a big kick out of the last name Swindle on the check. It's kind of like ego coming through here because she just really did not think she was going to get caught. But in this process, we were able to pull and extract all of that data and give to the FBI in terms of where this money went. They were just really able to hone in on the investigative. They, they actually started on the interview process. The one unique thing about this case is that we saw no lifestyle change in this individual. We never found any evidence of a lifestyle change. She agreed with her attorney to 
an interview with all of us in the room, including the FBI agent. Before we had that interview, the FBI agent came to me and says, I want to know where the money is. And I said, what do you mean? He says, watch. So when we were doing the interview process and it came down to him, he started in pretty quickly, you have any money in another bank account? Have you wired this money? Have you? And he was continuously putting the pressure on her to the point, is the money buried in the backyard? And as he was asking these questions, bullet point back and forth, I could see her chest beginning to heave and cave. She was breathing, breathing more rapidly the entire time he was drilling at her. He never got anything, and as soon as he stopped the, the push on where did the money go, she let right back up and was back to breathing normal. And that has been a unique aspect of this case. We do not know where the money went. Well, and she's paying restitution. Yeah, she is paying restitution. She's had jail time. I, I would not be a bit surprised, though, at some point to see money come back in. My main concern in dealing with this aspect was to make sure we got her arrested. Yeah. We gave the FBI enough evidence to get her convicted because the individual doesn't, she doesn't need to be around money. Did she seem in that interview process remorseful at all? Yeah, remorseful, but every time I see remorse, I'm always concerned, is it truly remorse or is it remorse because I got caught? And it's so hard to tell the difference. I did see her break down at one point in the interview process because no one could understand why she did it, and even she did not give a definitive answer to that. And at one point, she did kind of tear up a little bit and say, I did this for my husband, but I'm not sure that that was a true response. But because she would just not say much at all about it. She had a teenage son. She was well known in the community. She and her husband worked with teenagers and did camping trips. From a community perspective, she would be the typical type of embezzler that no one would ever think would do such a thing. Going over our benchmarking report of investigation teams that's going to be released later this year, a lot of things go, you know, without any legal intervention. And one of the risks is then they just go on to another company. They go to another credit union because the establishment doesn't want to tarnish their reputation. It's very great that y'all were able to see it through and get it on her record, you know, so that she can't be around money, hopefully, if the next company does their due diligence. She has been barred from the NCUA of ever working in a credit union again. So I read also that she had the authority to make loans below a certain threshold without getting approval from her supervisor. Is that something that you think changed after this? Or should there have been some sort of separation of duties with that? Her limits were low. Uh She didn't follow it. Yes, there should have been, I believe, in particular, some more oversight from the loan committee on this, but she was very effective at keeping these loans over under her threshold limit so it wouldn't have been noticed. And the other key was that she made sure that payments were being made. It's what I call an evergreen loan. You're taking one loan out to pay another loan off and there's no principal and interest. And she was doing that in these monthly payment amounts in order to keep 
all of these loans out from under the radar. And when F1 was getting a little bit close to being behind, she would issue a new loan and completely pay off the old oh. loan. She also had access to enough in the computer system she would change interest rates on these oh. loans to where some of them would have very, very low interest or no interest at all. And she would take part of the loan proceeds to set up, because in a credit union you have to have a member, you have to have a checking account with a minimum balance. Uh -huh. So to set these up, she had these members, she made a checking account for them, kept those minimum balances in there, and sometimes she would add a little bit to that balance. So it looked like there was activity going on on the checking account and the loan account. And I even read somewhere that she kept a blog about the benefits of credit unions. Yes, she did. She kept a blog. She actually was, at the time this occurred, had told the NCUA loan officer that she was going back to school to get her degree in accounting and that she would like to be NCUA examiner. That was her goal. Top lessons learned. What, what did you take away from this case? The internal control structure and where it was weak, where they needed to improve. Loan committee needs to be more active, involved in this. The audit committee needed to be more involved in this. In fact, with the advent of this case, the head of the audit committee resigned, realized that Maybe they hadn't done the due diligence they should have done. From an investigative perspective, I think the most important fact was do your homework. Make sure you've got your I's dotted and your T's crossed. We did a lot of research in this. We actually found the boat in her backyard that was on one of the fictitious loans that was caught. Learn to use your resources very well. Google Maps is great. Using those resources and putting them to use. And never, ever forget about the ability to do the data analytics. Then there's always the follow-up with the paper trail. And I think that's something we all still deal with. I don't care how efficient and how data sensitive we all become and we work in a strictly paperless environment they're still that paper trail but i think it was most most interesting to see someone with that type of college background being able to manipulate a system that was one of the things that we suggested was to have their reporting financial reporting system that they were using needed to be modified and restricted so that there was not the type of user access that was there before. Thank you so much for sharing this. Oh, well, I am most happy to. Like I said, it was a very interesting case. All in all, we found definitely more than what the court agreed upon, but we still found a sufficient amount that we got the district attorney and, and the state of Tennessee here, and they do not take embezzlement lightly and they're very good about proactively working on these cases and it's really helpful for us in the long run. You were able to document a total of $370,000, right? Yes. So I just want to make sure everyone knows that's, that's yeah, really good. Yeah, we were able to totally document that without a question. 
The remaining part, we found a total of 503,000 that was considered suspicious. But the 390,000, we were able to nail directly to specific information that was related to her. Well, again, thank you so much. I'm excited to see you at our annual conference, too. Surprisingly, we've done a lot of podcasts about embezzlement because it just happens all too often. And like you just mentioned, with people you would least likely suspect. It's always beneficial to see what happened and and how it it even got to that point. Yeah, I agree. I think case studies are very valuable. And every case study that I've seen, I've read, or I've talked about, I always come back with a little nugget of information that I may not have thought about that I'll stick back in the back of my mind for the next one, because there's always those nuances in each case that are different. So you're always learning. You always learn something new. And I think that's the nice. There's two nice things about working where I work. Number one, I always feel like I'm helping the good guy. And I am not helping the bad guy, even when I just do forensic accounting in a litigation setting. There's going to be one that's going to like my report. There's going to be one that's not going to like my report. And the other thing, I always feel very good about being able to see a form of justice served when people do the wrong thing. Well, thank you so much, Pam. Uh, I look forward to seeing you and Jill. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody signing off. You can find all of our podcasts on acfu.com and in the iTunes store. So please look for us there. And we will talk to you next month.